We have now reached the 10th episode of our podcast series, and today we will continue exploring the inspiration sources of the artists themselves. Because watching diverse artistic expressions, including performing arts, is something that can be inspirational to us as an audience. But what about the artists on stage? What are they driven by? I have really been looking forward to this episode because today we have the pleasure of having Corinta Leven with us. Corinta Leven is a multidisciplinary artist, scenographer and stage designer, and his artistry runs across several terms such as theatre, scenography and visual art. Corinta works with the various issues, stories, spaces and aesthetic expressions related to queer and his work is firmly rooted in the queer as a living community and its heritage and legacy. Now I'm curious to get to know Corentin's artistry a bit better. What events, people, works of art or places have been crucial to him? Welcome, Corinta. Hi, Uda. First of all, did I manage to pronounce your name correctly? You did perfectly. But you can also call me Coco because I'm used to going by Coco here in Norway. So. Oh, good. Then I'll call you Coco. Yeah, <laughs> easier. So, Coco, as your name indicates, uh, you are originally from France, but you are based here in, in Oslo. Exactly. Yeah, and you graduated from the Norwegian Theatre Academy in Fredrikstad in 2015. And mm -hmm. how long have you been living here in Norway now? Yeah, it's a long story. We're close to 10 years now, but it's been like one year back in France and all that. Yeah. But yeah, it's starting to count. So how are you doing these days? Uh, I'm uh, doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, it's been a very um, hectic period, I guess, in general for all... Uh, of us but uh, in general I try to take it as it comes and uh, I, I don't know it's been just a lot of um, producing and training and trying to focus back maybe in the field it's been quite um, I kind of like fell back I was very uh, tired after work and all that so it was very good to also be forced to rest a little bit uh, and now I'm coming back to work and I just uh, slowly get back into culture and arts. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it's good to have a break for gathering inspirations and other impressions and just, yeah, as you say, calm down a bit. Yeah, very much. And also just to do a little like um, check up with yourself and how you feel. Uh, it was a good reason to have a little like artistic check up, but also a personal check up, see things that I maybe have left off a little bit in my own personal life because of work and all that so it was a very good introspective period oh it's so good to hear maybe healthy yeah <laughs> oh so earlier this season in february you premiered with your very first physical solo performance here at black box theater uh plus my no yeah plus minus plus minus or yeah. positive negative depends it i kind of like that we don't really know how to um say it it's a bit the whole point of this performance that it's not so much about how to say it but more how you feel it so i like that the title stays this blurry 
yeah. title. And uh, the typography is also quite mm-hmm. nice, you know, how it's written like graphically. But Plus Minus is, uh, is a gripping piece, uh, which made um, an impact on me at least, and many other views. Uh, and the piece also received great praise, uh, both from the audience and from the critics. So uh, I was thinking to quote uh, Hanne Ramstal in the Norwegian Shakespeare magazine. She wrote that um, Karen Tallevén, he puts his own illness and his artistic work into a larger social societal perspective that leaves traces in me as a spectator. And in Plus Minus you do portray uh, your own story with uh, HIV. Mm-hmm. And further, you ask the question, as a young person, how do you accept a life with HIV and the lifelong fight against stigmatization that follows? And I think that we need to talk a bit more about that performance uh, later on. But um, uh, in March, uh, all the theatres and major parts of the entire society had to shut down due to the coronavirus. And what were you doing at that time? Yeah, what was I doing? I was actually very lucky to uh, work and partake in the international festival here uh, for the whole period. So I got to witness a bit the the backstage of what it is for an institution to even just put Coronide a thinking box and having to deal with it even before um, society decides to shut down. So it was very interesting and a lot of stress also realizing that it's... uh, it's a lot of different things that you have to take care of and different people that you have to take care of for this specific purpose. So um, it's been a quite a crazy experience to witness it from inside and also very warm. I must say it was very uh, moving to be part of a, such a small art community to witness uh, what it feels like when the world crumbles around and how we can uh, find ways. Yeah. yeah, we definitely had to flip the switch and just... Yeah. And rethink it went everything so quick and every day was a whole different uh, no we j- yeah, we really had to be on the, in the minutes and it was very uh, very interesting to f- I'm happy that we didn't have to do this for two months straight but because uh, <laughs> yeah. it was exhausting I remember that it felt very uh, like it's just a lot of pressure and all that yeah and so I remember during I the festival I mean from one day to another it was mm-hmm. like the foyer was filled with with people yeah. uh, experiencing art on stage and then from one day to the next we just had to yeah shut yeah. everything down it and it's quite a baby eh? so when this whole festival shuts it's very it's also emotionally evolving eh? oh, yeah, yeah it is uh, so I know that this spring you had uh, many events on your agenda and among other things you were going to perform plus minus at the multiplayer festival in I Trondheim mm-hmm. and other places as well uh, if I'm correct yeah um, so what have you been up to the these past months yeah, so that's it. Instead, I had to uh, become a producer and uh, try to foresee a future, trying not to. Um, I got very worried after a point in this corona time, understanding that it was either we have to push this work if we want uh, to uh, tour with it and make sure we reach another audience, because it could very easily fall into this black hole because it's really much in this in-between seasons and then corona comes right after. So. Uh, so that's what I've been trying to do, like become a producer. Yeah. <laughs> Not going so well. No, it is. It's going okay. But uh, that's basically what I've had to uh, do this last month. So like uh, creating contacts and uh, hopefully start to speak positively about a near future or at least a future with other venues. 
Yeah, because it does look brighter now. I mean, due to the the updated guidelines from the government considering yeah. the corona situation, then uh, theaters and cinemas and other public venues are now allowed to open again uh, to have viewings for up to 50 people yeah. um, with one meter distance apart yeah, as we're yeah. sitting across from this table, you know, uh, exactly. <laughs> in this room right now. Um, so this means that we're, we are uh, gradually opening up uh, Black Box Theater to the audience again. And uh, it feels wonderful to be able to, to have viewings again after all this time. And uh, even though we have to be very careful and take many precautions yeah. uh, and all that. But the best part of this is that the first viewings on our program will be uh, a rerun of your performance plus minus it in will. June. Which is fantastic. And I really look forward to... Uh, showing this work again in this specific context where we're gonna talk about an other virus because we haven't spoken enough about viruses lately no yeah. but it's going to be very interesting to now that um oh i'm very interested to hear how the audience gonna um, experience the work just by having been exposed to yeah like illness viruses in a different context in a way that it can become like quite I don't know, a lot of anxiety rose and all that in this period. And it's a big part of the performance as well, talking about HIV. So it's quite exciting to present it and have discussions around it and yeah. see if it resonates. Like, I have no clue if it's going to work. Uh, it's it's so interesting. Yeah, it's going to be challenge. great to see. Yeah, but I really think it has uh, an additional actuality now mm. Yeah, for people to relate to. Very much. So we'll be here on the 19th and 20th of June. Yeah. Uh, for two performances. Yeah, so the listeners, you should just uh, grab your tickets as soon as possible. And it's uh, going to be like this. Come no, and see it's it. very special also because um, it was beautiful to be offered to do this performance again. And first it was because it was Pride, uh, but also Corona now. So I think it's, uh, uh, it, I don't know, all the, like the calendar just makes perfect sense. So yeah. it's very exciting to confront all these narratives into like concentrate them into this one piece of work for one hour. Yeah, and that's yeah. true. The Oslo Pride Festival were to be in June, so... The week after. Yeah, so the timing is perfect and that way. And it should still be. People, yeah. we are visible. <laughs> Get out, do something. Oh, that's true. And now we actually are able to do it as well, mm -hmm. so... Just oh. do it safely. Yeah, that's important mm -hmm. too. Uh, so, Coco, we have invited you here today to talk about sources of inspiration and about what inspires you as both an artist and as a personal general. Mm -hmm. um, and below the uh, the episode description of the podcast, we will add this list of, uh, of references so that the listeners can uh, search up the topics and inspirations that you, you're sharing with us. So first of all, um, can you recall your first striking aesthetic experience, like something that made an impact on you and perhaps changed your perspective or thoughts around art or or life or the world <laughs> for that sake <laughs> um definitely or I, I mean having to think about it it's of course very hard to know the first one but i definitely have this experience that uh, i've carried with me and that i still relate to a lot and i think um it is a theater performance that i saw when i was maybe 15 or something like this i studied uh, in university with a literature and theater major so we would have to go and see some performances every semester uh, of our choice, but uh, we would have to go there. And um, I saw this performance by Pippo del Bono that was called uh, Questo Buio Feroce, 
uh, which means, uh, well, it means this ferocious darkness, but it is the Italian translation of a book that in English is called This Wild Darkness. So I don't really know what would be the perfect translation for this. But it's definitely a, a very pungent, attacking kind of word that has to go with darkness. Um, and this was my uh, first theater performance, uh, uh, or like this kind of like striking performance where uh, I remember it was playing for three days and after seeing it the first days I was just totally, I just could not think of something else so uh, then I had to just call the theater and I remember they even, so I got another ticket for the day after and they got me this and I went for another time, I went for the three dates because wow. it was just uh, so striking and I really had to kind of process these emotions and also understand where it came from. Um, so people del Bono, he's an Italian, isn't he? He's Italian. He's yeah. an Italian director. He works with um, very um, his own story, but also very uh, his cast of actors is very. Um, it, it's it's all this body bodies on the verge of breaking, or at least bodies that have a certain history, something very um, gra a certain gravity in these bodies and. Uh, this specific piece was actually about uh, inspired by a book, as I mentioned, uh, called uh, "This Wild Darkness." Dot dot stories of my death, yeah. which is a book Harold that Harold Brodke, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. it was written by Harold Brodke, and it's a book he wrote. Uh, f uh, interesting enough, uh, it's a book that he wrote when he was first diagnosed with uh, HIV/AIDS, and he just wrote essays until the end. Yeah. Uh, more or less coherent until he passed. But this book is really like, yeah, the story of his death, the reason why he died. And this book that uh, the director found uh, in a rather weird place, I don't exactly remember where he finds it, but he, he talks about it in the beginning of the piece. And then this whole creative theater work came out of this book. And it's really a book with, uh, a book, sorry, a performance with a lot of, um, you know, you have this really beautiful, bodies on stage delivering whichever story narratives they have to deliver but in the same time it has this poetic sense in everything they do by the simplicity of what is presented on stage and that was really um, a very very strong experience uh, it touches so many topics in so many weird uh, well not weird for weird but like um, incongruous aesthetics yeah. so you, you will hear about this insane incest stories with this uh, drag character speaking about in a weird microphone and, and then you would have this death fashion walk happening for a very very long time and a reenactment of some fairy tales it's just it's just such a journey like um, a very uh, very very beautiful performance and preparing a little bit for this podcast I actually realized that like the last two months they have released the version on Vimeo for free oh, so really? uh, I would uh, really recommend you to check the list that uh, Uda talked about in the beginning and um, check this performance. It's very, uh, very special, I would say. Yeah. And you were only 15 when you saw it the first yes, time. Yes. And yeah. I watched it yesterday again because uh, like this is how important it is to me. I was still I was very like a child finding a, something very important to me. So I watched it as soon as I found it. Yeah. Uh, it's one hour and it's beautiful. I just have to ask, what what brought you into performing arts in the first place? Because that's, I mean, you were 15 and here in Norway, we don't really uh, like major yeah. in the such subjects mm. at such an early stage. 
in France, you kind of are forced uh, to uh, specify at least. You don't have to take a major, but you have to specify between science, literature, and many other things. But I was in a general education. Yeah. And uh, it was an available option to push it up to a major in theater. So I just went. For, I, I don't really explain everything I, I've done in my life, what I do in my life. I, I kind of believe there's a some kind of good star up there taking care of me I don't know not yeah. very spiritual as a person but I believe that uh, uh, there's order and chaos sometimes so I just had to take decisions and for the most it's worked out okay so far so I'm yeah. happy about it <laughs> but I remember also very well that um, that's also maybe why I first pushed more through scenography because I also remember that it was a rather classical education in theater having to learn all these classics and all that because it was joined together with literature and all that so it was a lot of text comments and having to analyze a lot of things and uh, maybe scenography felt more free in this in this way that it was also about yeah visuals and emotional response and understanding uh, but I know that for a very long time and the reason that I went to know was actually to become a roller coaster designer that was my really? dream <laughs> is that true Yes, wow. I wanted to be a roller coaster designer, and after a lot of research, being fifteen, I discovered that if you had a degree in scenography, you could uh, get into it and be a part of the artistic team. And I've always been fascinated about how to deliver a story in movement. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I guess it's wow. not so far. It's just a weird story, but uh, yeah, theater is not so far from a roller coaster ride. I guess <laughs> that's true. <laughs> All things do happen; like yeah. they just roll on, mm. anyways. So you definitely are very multifaceted as an artist. I mean, you are both a scenographer, um, you've been working with stage design, an actor and performer yourself, mm-hmm. uh, and now also a producer. I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, your resume is just uh, heaping up. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, and how about music? Uh, is yeah. that also an inspiration source too? It is a huge inspiration. Unfortunately, I don't... I don't play any instrument and I think it's the big regret of my life. Well, it's but not I too late. <laughs> yeah, I tried. I tried piano. It's not going so well, but I'm keep on, uh, I keep on trying. But at least uh, somehow I have this very uh, lucky thing that I still feel very close to music. Music is a very big part of my life somehow. And it doesn't have to be always very uh, like super artsy or anything. I'm very into uh French chanson and all this uh, genre and variety and like pop music and I think it's just brilliant and this is actually uh, maybe like at the heart of what I want to defend and what I do as well in general that uh, this pop element that we find in music is very important for for the queer on how we have defined ourselves and how we have found the words to express ourselves the trust from all these exposed personalities to help ourselves become who we are and know it's going to be okay and um, so I've always found this, not always comfort, but at least I've always had this big attraction towards music. But uh, also in my working life, I have met, um, well, I met Bianca Cassidy at the Norwegian Theatre Academy. And uh, we were working on a theatre project there, but she was, uh, she's also a very, very big, um, she's just an artist. She needs to do everything by herself. She's a very multifaceted artist, very like uh, capable in everything she wants to do. Yeah, and she's a part of the duo uh, Coco Rossi, yes. right? she is yeah so um it was very interesting to work with her in the way that she really uh, sees music in everything she does somehow but it turns into video it turns into scenography theater stories poetic uh, like a poetry or anything so 
meeting her, I've had the chance after this education to go on tour with her uh, and be her light scenographer. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, for a year on the roads in Europe. Oh, not a year, like six months. Uh, and then somehow it is, it's, uh, that's maybe like what I'm very willing to share with. And I know it's, it's quite uh, well known uh, as a band, Coco Rosie, but it's, uh, it's the kind of music that I would uh, kind of refer to as in, I think there are masters of melancholy and poetry, which is everything I love. Uh, yeah. Uh, sh she is and her sister as well. Like they are very melancholic persons with their own um, words and codes around it. And uh, it's uh, the kind of music that really moves me in simple melodies and uh, yeah. So I was thinking to maybe uh, propose you and the audience to take a little time and listen to Animals by uh, Coco Rosie whenever you have time. Yeah, we're going to list that down below. So yeah. yes, I would recommend you to just take a minute and listen to this song again, just because it is a perfect uh, resume of how wonderful poetry and uh, melancholy comes through a mic and this yeah, beautiful voices mixing together. Is music something you can like strategically uh, turn on to get yourself into some sort of a working mode, or is it more like a an underlying constant uh, inspiration to you? The thing is that I listen to music really a lot every day. Yeah, I think I'm also part of this iPod generation. That's maybe what it is. But we yeah. have a different relation to music in the way that it's we don't have to be home or somewhere specific to listen to music. Yeah, and we better uh, go anywhere without anything in our yeah. ears all the time. And it's quite, uh, it's a luxury, if I were to say. I, th I can't picture my life without being able to walk in the street and just turn on my favorite Yeah, it songs. makes your life a bit like a movie sometimes. Mm. <laughs> so it's, uh, so I use music a lot for everything. If it's for walking, training, or if it's also just, uh, yeah, I'm very good at testing all these new uh, stupid Spotify playlists. Yeah, but they're really so helpful sometimes. Exactly. <laughs> so I just find the most generic keywords and I try what they have to offer. Turns yeah. out it's okay. So even writing applications and all that, I manage to. I need music actually to focus. So yeah. it's very interesting to to witness my own brain like calming down and just focusing much more when there's so much noise or, or not only noise but also melodies and all that around me. Yeah, and uh, about writing, do you read a lot of books? If I read, uh, yes, I read. Uh, or it's uh, very. I used to read a lot, like a lot, lot, lot. But I have. Um, after HIV, everything has changed a little bit and it took me a very long time to get back to literature. And yeah. I'm almost a little romantic about this story in the way that I really feel like it matters to me. Uh, and it was important for me to distance myself uh, from from literature and all this. Yeah, because um, you were diagnosed three years ago? Yeah, yeah, three years ago. And it was very... Um, it felt like you, that my story was not the same as anyone else's. You know, it's a bit how you deal with trauma in this way that uh, yeah. either you find comfort like the first day or you don't and then it becomes a bit like this reluctant uh, pattern so I uh, I am now actually uh, getting back into reading Corona has been good for that as well I've had yeah. some beautiful moments listening to Oprah and reading yeah books. <laughs> <laughs> no it's been a great time for that yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. true so I've uh, been reading a lot and I still uh, carry a very uh, important relationship to two very specific books uh, that are very dear to me yeah and uh, they they will sound uh, incredibly uh, pretentious but it's really a personal um, connection that I have with these books 
Um, one of them is this book by Sartre. Told you it would be pretentious. <laughs> I told you it would be pretentious. No, it's uh, it's this very short book that is actually a lecture that was transcribed later on into a book. So it's a rather simple way to approach uh, Sartre. And it's called uh, Existentialism is a Humanism. And uh, it's a beautiful um, lecture or text uh, in which he really gets to um, defend his exi existentialist philosophy uh, in simple terms and also in very concrete terms because they were very good fighting Albert Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre. So this fight was very good for both of them to kind of define their ideas. And it's one of these books that is very... Uh, when you finish it, you have this open page in your life. It's uh, it's uh, I read it every year. Uh, this book, I read it every year and every year I take a new color and a like a new pen with a new color and I underline different parts and I always write the day I the dates in which I, I wrote this book. So I have it and it's just a little library of my own somehow now. Oh, it's oh just dear. lines everywhere and dates everywhere and comments everywhere. Do you remember when you first read it? So I read it first, uh, my first year of philosophy classes, which is when I was uh, 16. Wow, yeah, it's yeah, really it been was, following you. It was following me. It was uh, my philosophy teacher uh, giving it to the class saying like, that this was kind of like a present for our future. And I remember all of us laughing a little bit like it was you know like stupid teenagers getting a book <laughs> sometimes <laughs> it doesn't work in plenum but um once you get past this very like privileged way of thinking of existentialism the way it talks about it uh, once you accept that it can be something about you and not just about the world around you yeah um, it becomes a very beautiful book very meaningful and I think it has actually pushed me up to where I am right now. That's why I keep on reading it every year. It's, uh, it kind of says, like, seize your chances and know how to deal with people around you in the way that is... Um, I'm summing it up so badly. Uh, it's obviously no, no, philosophy no. and not just a self-help book. But you're making book. it understandable. But um, well, people should definitely yeah, dig I down I would recommend this. to read it. I think it's like 80 pages, no more. And it's classified in chapters because it was a lecture. So it's... Uh, no, it is a, it's a, it's a beautiful book. It yeah. is a very beautiful book. I also have this other book very quickly to mention that's very important to me because it is related also to all this, which is uh, Madame Bovary yeah, by yeah, uh, yeah. Flaubert. Uh, and that's also one of these books that I read uh, every year. Like every year, it's one of these books. I usually read it together with Mrs. Dalloway because I think they're so... Uh, exciting yeah. together from Virginia Woolf. It's like the English equivalent of... She's <laughs> almost right. Yeah. In, uh, it's, so it's very... Uh, focusing back into uh, Bovary, at least it's a very um, interesting book. In the way. It's one of the few books that make me laugh out loud and yet there is this melancholy and this gravity again in the character, like in Emma Bovary in herself. Yeah, she's, um, uh, she's the wife of a doctor who exactly. is longing for uh, a more, so yeah, more. liberated life. Mm -hmm. So yeah. much more. And it's very interesting. Very recently, I listened to an audiobook version of it, yeah. like uh, actually during Corona. <laughs> and uh, I realized that very often she is portrayed as this very naggy girl that has everything she wants. And uh, yeah, like very naggy, privileged girl. But I've never read it this way. I've always felt it was a very uh, important story. But the rest around it is a very funny context. And it was written as a it was written as a farce. It was written as a mocking the peasants. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it has this humor. It's so uh, this is the equivalent of a telenovela in two thousand twenty. Yeah, 
No, you you mentioned that these were like sort of, you know, slightly um, uh, pretentious. But I mean, those historical novels are, uh, I mean, highly accurate today as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess they have this timelessness and this sense of both humor and like opinions around existential matters that still are relevant for us today. No, they really resonate at least a lot with me. Yeah. Uh, So these are like, for instance, these two books are like what I would take on a desert island. Yeah. (laughs) So I was thinking about the, you mentioned the the pop culture and pop cultural references. Uh, And I know that you also are dealing with some of these references in your performance, plus Mm -hmm. minus. Uh, because of the pop cultural references to HIV, many people yeah. associate it with um, the stereotypes of yeah, the no, victims of AIDS. Yeah, now yeah. I just my mind just froze. Yeah, Freddie Mercury, of exactly. course. Exactly. Yeah, all this, and uh, so on. which are regretted by all means, but it's um, yeah in this project uh, because it is self- such an almost uh, selfish uh, um, decision to make such a performance, and I think it's also important for it to stay so humble and so true. Uh, to keep it to this degree but of course it felt uh, in this project at that point looking back and on how which stories were around me when I was telling friends or close people like people close to me about my diagnosis and all that I kind of felt like my narrative could have been suppressed because of these great icons that fell uh, and uh, it kind of just felt like I didn't have to be Freddie Mercury to still be hurt and a sad person at the moment yeah um, but in the same time, I have a huge uh, passion for pop culture, as we talked about earlier. But it was just very interesting in this context to see that not all stories can be told through one uh, and who tells the story. And yeah. And um, about um, famous persons, so to <laughs> say, <laughs> uh, are there any any public persons that have mm. been inspirational to you or uh, yeah I uh, yes I mean very much I guess I'm a, I'm also a child of my time so like I guess all this stardom is a bit like what we grew up with um, and uh, ever since I was uh, six year old I've been uh, a huge fan of the one and same uh, French artist and it's a feeling I'm very happy to have because it's a very um I d- I d- it's something specific about like this unconditional or oh, it's not unconditional we, I guess some things could make it fall apart <laughs> but uh, but it feels unconditional at least this kind of um, love you can have for someone you never met and the respect you can have for whatever that person will do um, it's uh, I don't know I speak about it around at times and uh, I, I'm very happy I have this emotion in me and I had it for so long. Like, Who is uh, this in Yeah, it's the most cliche person you can have as a gay French guy. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Her name's Milan Farmer uh, and she's a very big cliche. But she has uh, helped me define so much, you yeah, know, growing like up. Like a gay as icon, a, sort of? She is a gay think? icon. Yeah. And uh, being a, a little gay boy in the countryside, it was very important to have this kind of icon. And um, I don't know, uh, it's... Uh, you kind of feel so. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. She's been following you ever since. Yeah. Now she's a. Uh, yeah. She's also had her way to say it like this. She's not uh, 30 anymore, but she's a uh, very important. Still now to me, like uh, every time there's something I can see or buy, I usually do it. So yeah. <laughs> it's a little stupid passion. But I very respect this kind of. Um, yeah, like the way pop culture works and the way he has. I really see pop culture as something that has saved uh, a lot of people. And uh, we can, of course, try to talk sense or nonsense and 
discredit or credit some of these personalities that work in this uh, field, but uh, they are really much saving lives uh, in a very, yeah, in a very special way. Like uh, as soon as they meet this audience, it's quite important actually the changes they can make in someone's life. Yeah. And I think, as we briefly touched upon as well with queer culture and all that, it's uh, I think it's very important to have this spoke persons and people that you can trust to and expose yourself uh, I don't know through interviews or whatever you would find about those people and if they manage to be a voice for you and put a certain frame into in the world basically for you to know which directions to navigate in and make it safe for yourself yeah uh, it's good I mean no. if you cannot uh, directly identify with them then at least you can sort of lean on them or exactly. just find support when you're uh, feeling lonely or mm. I mean yeah. just for yourself for your own sake no yeah. I really think um for all good and bad of course it's a, it's a very large industry but uh, I have a lot of respect for this and I I'm very glad I had this in my life at least yeah mm -hmm. so um, how about places are there any particular places that have mattered to you <laughs> yes very much no oh yes of course there must have been many but uh, to stay in the same topic I would say that any good gay bar <laughs> is a good is a good inspiring place to me yeah. there is something about being exposed to a I mean, it sounds stupid, but it's actually very true. Like it's something uh, so difficult to claim a space in in a city or in a in an even smaller city, and when you have a safe place to meet, share stories, um, help each other, uh, have a good time together. Uh, I don't know. It's something very interesting and important for me in community. I'm, I react a lot to community, anyways, yeah. as a word, and it's true that for me. Uh, yeah, a gay bar is kind of like one of the most inspiring places. Like it's um, there are so many, and any bar you would you could argue has this kind of things where you could meet someone with a lot of stories and all that. But I think there's this vulnerability, and yet this nothing is always. I, I don't really know how to express this. It's it's in the way that not everything has to be so important all the time, like in any bar. But if you start a conversation, it can really deeply move you as well. Yeah. And this is really a big source of inspiration for me in the way that um, you share stories with people around, you build memories with people around, and it's not the kind of friends you would make an appointment with, but you go out and you find them, and it's a very direct joy, and you kind of know where those people come from, or you get to know where those people come from. And it's a lot of stories, even in Norway in 2020, that have to be shared in terms of, uh, yeah, like queer rights and discrimination, violence and different upbringing and all that. And it's very important to be here for each other and try to help each other at times as well. We'll just celebrate together. Yeah. So I a good gay bar is a good place. <laughs> that's a, that's <laughs> a good tip. Yeah. Just uh, search off your closest gay bar and yeah, get over exactly. there. But I think it seems like it's in a welcoming and including place for everyone to come. So And it's yeah. the fruit of a very long and difficult work. And that's also the thing. And that's maybe what we have to be careful now in 2020 on uh, not to... Mm, diminish the power of a queer place and maybe not sell it too much to pop culture but actually yeah. uh, pay tribute to uh, what it took for a bar to stand in the middle of the city center and yeah. it's a lot of fights and it's a lot of uh, stories going into the walls but also like it has to stay a safe space for the future generations so it's uh, maybe a new problematic we have to face now as uh, as queer like how do we acknowledge allies and how do we consolidate the community from inside as well 
yeah so, i don't have the answer but it's something i think a lot about how yeah. to keep it gay <laughs> yeah but uh, how has it been now during you know considering the coronavirus situation yeah. and all that when you're not able to just uh, yeah head out to that sort of a community and find that mm. uh, that um yeah it sounds extremely um i don't know i've been uh, i mean i'm very lucky to have a beautiful person by my side so it was a it was not a lonely experience per se but of course you meet the community very quick but it was following some other friends and all that you can really see that they have this need for a place at the end of the day after a day at work or now at home after uh, having home office or something that there is this need to meet uh, with no agenda and yeah. that's very much uh, i am actually myself uh, like searching for all this data now and it's too early but i'm trying to see now like all these measurements and all that i'm very curious to know uh, how like mental distress and all that like how difficult has corona been and especially with the lgbt because i think it's been a very tough period and um yeah, yeah but as you say it definitely uh, emphasizes our need for uh meeting at the same physical mm-hmm. space uh, without having anything particularly on the agenda exactly yeah and, and i think in all these corona measures and all that we may be forgot a little bit about these things we talked about the kids having to go to kindergarten very quick but we also forgot that uh, a lot of people need some kind of interaction uh, a a different non how can i say non-planned interaction all the time it's um it's something very at least i think it it, it's been a bit of a mistake to not um, give a space earlier for all these people that actually need it yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, mental health is uh, yeah. just as important as physical health. I mean, yeah. it's the, in the same house, it's <laughs> so why are you separated? Yeah, so uh. we have to see what uh, what comes from it. But now that life is back already, you can uh, you can really see that things are doing better, but you also see who you lose along the way, the people that really had a hard time for these two months, and unfortunately it's very hard to get help. Uh, yeah. So they just have to take a little extra time to get back into the social life and feel supported again. Yeah. Yeah. So n- now what's next for you? <laughs> Producing, training. <laughs> <laughs> no, so what's next is this uh, wonderful uh, opportunity uh, to perform for uh, Black Box and Pride uh, here on the 19th and 20th of June. Uh, take notes on those days, guys. Take notes, book it. It's only 50 seats. And uh, after this, it will be uh, rehearsals with Ulf Nilsang and the uh, last part of his trilogy, uh, Ulf Goes Religious, uh, which will premiere in beginning of 2021. And uh, after this, we are going to Bergen with the solo performance. Positive, negative or plus minus is going to Bergen in September. Oh, really? So things like this, trying to produce as much as possible. Oh, it's good to hear that things are happening finally. I mean, we will get back on track as we used to be. Thank you so much for taking the time to join our podcast and share some of your inspirations with us, uh, Corentin. Thank you for having me. It's been a true pleasure having you here. And uh, we do look forward to having you on stage at Black Box uh, again in a few weeks from now. Exciting. So this was actually the final podcast episode before the summer. So hopefully we'll be back during the upcoming fall with more conversations and readings related to the artistic program here at the theatre. Many thanks to all of you who have been following and listening to our podcast series this spring. Uh, If you've got any feedback, we'd love it if you shared with us and feel free to reach out to us by email to oda at blackbox.no 
or you can hit us up on our social media channels on Facebook and Instagram. You're also most welcome to share your podcast moment on Instagram by using the hashtag uh, BBT podcast. That's podcast with a C. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast in your preferred player and that way you'll be notified when we release new episodes in a couple of months. So stay tuned. Have a good summer.